it just my wife came in for, they had something yeah. at work and she didn't she didn't know I was recording so she just came in and, no, and no problem and uh, gave, no me problem all. Ah. gave me a cupcake gave me a cupcake so <laughs> hello and welcome to another episode of research at OU Law School on today's episode, we celebrate July 17th, International Justice Day. On this day in 1998, after some intense negotiations, the Rome Statute was adopted and opened for signatures and ratification. After decades of struggle, states finally negotiated and drafted a permanent international criminal court dedicated to putting on trial some of the worst perpetrators of atrocities committed around the world. To celebrate that achievement, I have a conversation with Dr. Alessandra Cupini, who is an associate lecturer here at the law school. We talk about expressivism, the idea that human beings as meaning-generating creatures give expression, give meaning to our values in our everyday activities, including the laws that we make and the values that we try to protect, the criminal law being a prime example. We talk about how expressivism is threaded through the Rome Statute and the case law of the International Criminal Court. I enjoyed recording this conversation and I hope you do too. Yes, of course. So, hello, everyone who listens to the podcast. So, my name is Alessandra. Uh, as Marian said, I'm an associate, associate lecturer at uh, the Open University. But before doing that, or as you can guess from my accent, I come from Italy, is where I studied law at the University of Bologna. And then in 2013, I moved to Scotland to study for my PhD at Strathclyde University. So my, what my research, first of all, what it's about, is about to evaluate what system of criminal justice can better allocate, or we can take a better, can provide a better foundation for the participation of victims in international criminal uh, tribunal. And in particular, my, my research focus is mainly on the, on the ICC, but I also looked at the ICTY, ICTR, because of course those are probably the the parents of the ICC. So basically, when I looked at my research, where the story begins and how it's been developed at the ICC. Just a little for context, the ICC is the International Criminal Tribunal. Sorry, the International oh, okay. Criminal Court. ICTY is the International uh, mm-hmm. Criminal Tribunal for former Yugoslavia, and the ICTR is the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. So just to okay, context, you're right. <laughs> yeah, yes, uh, please, yes, okay. please continue. Okay, so my motivation for doing my research, uh, when I was writing my master's dissertation, actually, which was about anonymous uh, witnesses, and I was I made a comparison between in uh, ICTY, ICTR, SEC. Can I say now do I have to write? Yes, to yes say you, can, you, can, you can say the acronyms now, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> and so, no, sorry, but just, you know, <laughs> to make sure. So, when I was writing my master's dissertation about anonymous testimony witnesses, so I was struck by the fact that victim participation, wherever is as a witnesses or as participants, was a, quite a contested argument 
in international criminal just international criminal justice scholarship. And so when I was thinking about because I really enjoy first of all writing my master's dissertation. So when I started thinking about doing research, I thought that it could be a very interesting topic to address, even though I believe that there is a lot of quite a lot of literature about these topics. But nevertheless, uh, the the originality of what what is my contribution my contribution is about is to assess what basically uh, I try to answer one question what uh, system of what theory of criminal justice can better um, provide a good foundation for victims rights victim participation international criminal proceedings so my point of view, I did a step back in my research. First of all, what are the goals that international criminal justice, international criminal procedure should achieve? And of course, once I answer this question, I can see, I try to, I, I build up on what theory can assess international criminal justice. Can assess, sorry, oh my God, I have to do that again because this is wrong, no assess. So I build up on what theory can be a good just theory can be a good justification for international criminal justice. Mm-hmm. And starting from this point is kind of not easy, but nevertheless, the next step is to Sorry, see just a, just how the theory. <laughs> so um, uh, okay, okay, so so where were we? Okay, let me start again because I lost, I lost, no, <laughs> I lost the point. But anyway, so I will make it even shorter. Okay. So, point of my research, starting point was what system of international criminal justice can better accommodate the rights of victims in international criminal proceedings? And therefore, you know, uh, what I did in my research, I assessed, of course, the restorative, uh, deterrent, and the criminal justice system in order to evaluate whether they represent, they provide an effective response. To, to the to the adjudication, so to the opera, operation operalization of international criminal uh, tribunal, and whether or not those those theory are good are a, an effective foundation for victims' participation in international criminal proceedings, and eventually my my response my response what I found out through my research is that of course international criminal justice systems like the CTY, CTR, ICC, if you think, or maybe if you think also the hybrid international hybrid tribunals. Anyway, they, of course, they should be funded in retributive deterrent and restorative justice princip- um, theory, theories. But indeed, those systems are not enough to address all the goals that international criminal justice should achieve. Just to give you a short um, out, uh, overview on this topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look about, for example, if you think about the retributivism, of course, what is the point that should be some sort of uh, correspondence between the, the gravity of the criminal conduct and punishment? Of course, the just desert perpetrator needs the just desert. But if you think about the, for example, I don't know, crimes against humanity, all the or the heinous crime committed. I mean, of course, it's, there's no possibility 
to provide a sort of proportionality between the gravity of the offense and the punishment. And actually, it's quite interesting because Damasca, and oh, sorry, Damasca Drumble, in his, he made a study where he claimed that he basically he looked at all the length of sentences at the ICTY, mm -hmm. and he found that eventually the ICTY issued like milder sentences that a domestic tribunal in the former Yugoslavia. So exactly some this sort of proportionality, it doesn't exist. And also the fact that those institutions, they rely on, of course, they cannot prosecute all the, the, the atrocity committed. Of course, again, it, this doesn't, it's difficult to provide that every perpetrator for every perpetrator to have a proper punishment. So retributivism from this point of view doesn't work that much in the international criminal justice arena. And also, for example, deterrence, it doesn't work that much as well, but because if you think about deterrence, it says that if the perpetrator is a rational person, mm -hmm. of course, he's aware that if he commits uh, some criminal conduct, it will be punished. But the rate of the chances of being prosecuted before an international criminal tribunal are quite low. So, of course, in, in, this, in this way, you know, that deterrence doesn't work that much. As I mean, well as for... Yes. So, for instance, the way deterrence works nationally in national criminal system is by having an entire um, a sort of justice system. You have a police mm -hmm. force, you have a, yes, a court system, you have um, social protection services, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So it's, it's just impossible to think that one criminal tribunal, international criminal tribunal, can stop uh, crimes happening everywhere. So it, this point of, of having, yes, retribution on one side, but having a, sort of a preventive function really doesn't come in uh, when, it, when, you, when you have an idea that it's just one criminal tribunal, even though there is a, a lot of weight behind it, put behind it from states, it just won't happen uh, because mm -hmm. it requires an entire system for to have some sort of a crime prevention um, uh, yes. possibility. Mm -hmm. Yes, if I if I may, you said of course you won't happen. Yes, you won't happen. You won't happen to sort to reduce the amount of, of criminal or criminal criminal act committed. In the short term, but actually, mm -hmm. I do believe that that that's why when it, and we got to, we get to the point of what is my suggestion, mm -hmm. or my, you know, what my research, what does it suggest? Because it's not just saying this is wrong, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. So my suggestion exactly that somehow that that it suggests that of course it's impossible to deter in the sh in the short term, but the point I would suggest to look at a little bit, having in the long term, having being in, having a look in the ter long term, and, and what I say is that international criminal justice can work somehow. Can so we can overcome these limitations of retributive uh, deterrence, and oh, we can talk uh, if you if we have enough time, time that about uh, restorative justice. Anyway. Uh, if we look, we can overcome this limitation if we take a different perspective. And my, my suggestion is to look at the expressivist theory of mm -hmm. criminal justice, which, which, from my point of view, provide a 
a better um, uh, a better justification provide make international criminal justice system more fit to achieve the goals that should achieve and realistically achieve so and also to provide better, a better foundation for the rights of victims in the international in the criminal proceedings and so what is this expressivism about so basically it comes from theory from a sociological psychological theories it basically says as you can get from the word expressivism that every every human act or even nature but okay now we're talking about human being every human act conveys a meaning a message and if we if we translate this simple statement in law and in particular in, in criminal law so the trial the all the actions that happens in the proceeding you know from the investigation to the uh, sentencing stage express a meaning a message mm-hmm. and of course um I, also, to be honest, also the perpetrator, the moment he commits a crime, express expresses a message. Of course, that of course he feels beyond, uh, beyond the system. So it's, it's kind of like he feels more important beyond the system. He doesn't need to. Co- he doesn't want or doesn't is not interested in complying with the social norms. But what, of course, what is the goal of my the focus of my research is not that much about the behavior of the perpetrators about what message international criminal justice can convey. And, and in particular, I think that uh, international, the international criminal proceeding, of course, by, by punishing, of course, conveys message about the disavowal of the crime, con- of the criminal action conducted, also express a didactic message that what has been done by the perpetrator is wrong and deserves to be punished. But most importantly, uh, what I think is more important just to shift the attention, not just from punishment, but from the the trial, the the proceeding, which in this case, especially works particularly well, because while the parents, the attribution, the focus just on punishment, we punish because of this, we punish because of that. Expressive says also the old proceeding can contribute to convey a message, convey um, to the international community. And so, what is this message? Uh, this message about? First of all, of course, through the criminal tri- trial, uh, we can build, uh, we can craft an historical narrative. So, as um, have a better understanding of what happened. Indeed, they understand that, of course, juridical truth and historical truth are two very different things. But yes. somehow, exactly, but somehow, uh, what is my point? That not just because there those two kind of truths are different, they, they can ne- they necessarily clash. Actually, I see like juridical truth as not as a closure, as actually an opening to further discussion. So this is the powerful of the trial. If you see in the specialist term, it's not just closure. We punish you and, you know, it's done. It is a moment of opening 
to start a discussion which should continue in international uh, uh, community about what happened to better understand the meaning of the shortages, what uh, what it um, what are the consequences for the inter- for you know the the community affected, mm-hmm. and in this way the trial as well the, the trial say the trial but the proceeding in general um, can also convey a didactic message because they send a message that of course the international community won't just be there and look at what's happening and doing nothing. And it's not because it, this is in terms like justice is um, it, to convey an idea of open justice when, of course, people can be involved in that mm-hmm. and, of course, say, you know, speak up in front, for example, of the judges. And convey, the most important thing I think get from the trial is the, the, this kind of trials is the importance that we should give to human rights standards, mm-hmm. which should be uh, protected, of course. So if you just uh, and I will give you a practical example because I, I understand I'm being quite theoretical. If you think about, for example, the uh, the child soldier phenomena. Of mm-hmm. course, when so I think about Lubanga, that he was enrolling children to fight, you know, as a soldier. Of course, as we see that, of course, from somehow European eyes, I think it's quite obvious that this is a crime. But nevertheless, probably in the context of, for example, what happened in Congo or uh, uh, Oh my God! Sorry, just under stop. Lubanga. Yes, the democracy. Yes, in Congo. Yes, sorry. I got... <laughs> yeah, I was like, is in Congo. Yeah, in Congo. So there was quite a normal. Also, think about uh, uh, gender-based crimes, sexual crimes. Again, somehow. Well, I mean, if you see that from European eyes, I think we we should, we, should, we definitely have a clear idea about what is the proper conduct to have and what is the not, not the proper conduct. But again, uh, in those contexts, with, of course, the social norms are quite upside down because of civil war or political conflict. I mean, it's, diff- it's difficult. And I, I understand, I mean, I've never been in such a position, but I can imagine that it'd be quite difficult to understand what is the proper behavior. And from this point of view, those international criminal uh, proceedings can also help to set up some standards of what are the basic human rights. Mm-hmm. And of course, now the, the, the next question is, where victims fit in all of this, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess? Well, but bef- before uh, we go into that, um, yes. mm-hmm. I, I like this um, sort of... Uh, it, um, the thing that you said, the, the phrase that you said, which is that um, the the trial and the judgment is mm-hmm. not the end of the conversation. That it, it yes. is both mm-hmm. for the local community where the conflict has happened, but it also for the international community to start mm-hmm. a conversation with itself um, mm-hmm. about what were the consequences to those crimes, both for the international community, what how have we responded and also for the local community in how we can heal from this awful thing that happened um, for which we now have a Mm -hmm. criminal trial for. Um, So, and I guess this is where uh, the victims come in. So can you tell us about that? Mm -hmm. 
Yes, exactly. The point that what happened, well, so far, not even that so far, but since uh, the, the, the inception of the International Criminal Court, what happened before, if you think about ICTY, CTR, victims can participate in proceedings only as witnesses. So, of course, they have to call to the stand, you know, by prosecutor or mm-hmm. defense. They were asked to answer some questions. And that's also victims cannot be build their own narrative in the in the proceedings. Then we have, of course, we have one sample, like one example, which is the Hakeman um, trial, where actually on the contrary, uh, victims can definitely add definitely a primary role in the proceedings. But again, possibly, you know, for example, Anna Harant Arendt was mm-hmm. quite critical of that because, of course, it says that actually those, the Ekman trial, it was more a short trial than anything else. And the victims, the, their contribution was, I mean, from a legal point of view, their contribution was quite minimal. They, of course, mm-hmm. they victims as an, an emotional impact on the, on, the, on the trial. But from a legal point of view, I mean, the, they didn't say anything particularly that was particularly relevant to prove Aikman uh, guilty, I think, because probably they have, they probably they had enough documents. So it was just something to provide, to give some part of, for the, you know, for the community of supporting this case from the Jewish uh, mm-hmm. community. And so what happened, what happened on the country when with the foundation, you know, with the establishment of the ICC, that uh, there was a problem because eventually one of the core constituency of international criminal justice, why we do that, basically, mm-hmm. is for victims as well, for providing some sense of justice to victims. And of course, but victims still didn't have any, any role except, of course, just a passive role as a witnesses, they were called and, and the all. Uh, so the drafters of the, of the ICC were kind of aware of that. There was a, a huge discussion about that. And eventually they come up with this Article 68 of the ICC statute, which, uh, I mean, from my point of view, is a good start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a good start because they acknowledge the victims can participate, so they have an autonomous standing to present viewer concerns. So exactly, but I said that this is a good start, but I'm quite critical as well, because this article says a lot, but mm-hmm. it didn't say that much in the same, at the <laughs> same time. Because, you know, if you think victims can express views and concern, what does it mean, you know? What and is especially, the, and no, how do they do it? Yeah, how, how do you organize that? How? What does it mean, this evidence? Mm-hmm. It's, it's quite confusing, because I understand, again, that is is because, of course, during the discussion on this specific article, there were two different points of view. The civil law countries, for example, like France, or some also uh, Argentina. Well, I don't know if Italy they were particularly <laughs> active in this, in this moment, but anyway, the point, like uh, civil law countries, was quite pushing for having victims to participate as a civil party, like party civil, like a French mm-hmm. system, while on the contrary, members, uh, drafters, 
from common law countries are very opposing this point of view. So eventually they ended up with this article that says, yes, uh, somehow we have to acknowledge that, that gives the victims some rights, but it's quite... It's very fuzzy and fluffy. <laughs> yeah, it leaves room, it leaves room for in lots of interpretations. Yeah. And then it comes the point that it is what happens. So basically, the drafters say, oh, we can achieve an agreement. So we write something that is quite vague, and then we leave to the judges to decide how to implement this uh, article and so how to give content to victims' rights. And that was quite interesting because judges, it depends where they come from, they have different mm-hmm. views. For example, uh, some judges uh, in the Lubanga case, for example, they interpreted these victims' this possibility to give view and concerns as almost giving evidence, mm-hmm. which this view was completely ruled out in the Benda case. So you see, this article leaves room to a lot of interpretation. And the point is that if we don't know what is the goal of victims mm-hmm. in this in this proceeding, this, all this international criminal justice institution, it's difficult to give also an interpretation that is consistent to this article. And from that was I'm, I'm trying to do in my research to setting to establish what should be the the goals of victims' participation, and I built on expressivist theory. So basically, of course, victims definitely can contribute to set up to to draft uh, not to draft sorry to crafting in the historical record of the events. And this is interesting because I think this is the, the judges of the International Criminal Court in their decision, definitely they acknowledge more than once actually that victims they can help, they really say they can help the the judges to mm-hmm. understand the context of the trophy committed. So this is I think one important goal for victims participation. So they should participate to help the judges. And in this sense it can be read as victims somehow are those who are a sort of a public check Mm-hmm. on what the prosecutors and judges do. Because, of course, they can, for example, in again, in Lubanga case, victim, uh, the prosecutor decided not to include gender-based crime and sexual crimes to the, uh, to the set of uh, charges. Um, uh, charges. Yeah, sorry, I was <laughs> missing the word charges against Lubanga. And victims and their representatives definitely fight against against that. In this case, of course, the judges decided to to follow the the line of the, the, the strategy of the prosecutor, yes. But in the moment the judges have to set retribution uh, reparation sorry for victims, also the reparation included the sexual crime that victims suffered. So you see, in this case, even the victims, the, their contribution did happen straight away at the beginning of the of the proceed of the trial. Mm-hmm. Their contribution, in a way, was useful to in the end. I mean, it's not that much, but still, something that is, it was important to to help the court form knowledge that it was not something just about a child soldier, but also was uh, crimes involving sexual abuse 
of uh, of children yeah definitely mm-hmm. were most children underage uh, yeah underage mm-hmm. um, boys and girls it's not just girls unfortunately and also in this case allowing victims to participate the international criminal ju- uh, court sends sends a message about exactly what is the the standard of fairness mm-hmm. that we should provide victims with because in this case in well not, not only lubanga case but also think about bemba katanga case also root and sang uh, is very those cases are very peculiar because even though victims of course with their participation they're not entitled to present evidence the court set established that not established the court decided that the court itself can require victims to present evidence in the case the court is not convinced for example about the the, the guilt or innocence beyond reasonable doubt so again the, the court more more than once uh, we're talking about different issues so interpretation mm-hmm. of uh, views and concern or the possibility of victims to present evidence. So in different issues regarding victims, of course, so the, the modalities of their participation, recognize that victims can have an important contribution to crafting an historical record of events, so helping the court better understand what happened, and also the international community as well. And again, this better understanding of the events, again, can be a starting point for the community, local community affected mm-hmm. to recovery, but also to um, to come to terms to what, uh, about what happened and also send uh, messages about exactly what is victim's participation, what are the standards of their participation, what it means being fair to victims in international criminal proceedings. And if we talk about before, we were talking about deterrence and I said of course it's not possible to deter immediately in the short in the short term but this educative message that victim participation but in general international criminal justice is trying to convey can educate communities so eventually it's not possible to deter immediately when something some war or something bad is happening but can, if you look in the long term, mm-hmm. can probably can educate people. So maybe in 30 years, something like that, the young, the young, the young generation. So something like some atrocity that happened before, possibly, of course, that's something that we still have to prove, but possibly what happened. So, the, the, so from an expressivist point of view, there is a sort of deterrence, mm-hmm. but it's not exactly deterrence in terms of we have a rational perpetrator, he understands that he does something wrong, he will punish. In terms like there is a, a breach of social norms to to behave in, in such a way, that, that is a, it's quite different. It is uh, expressive, it is deterrent in a slightly longer term. Right, so it's, it's, not, it's not this... Um... Um, so the the perfect rational uh, human being that knows that there is punishment if they do something, um, yeah. and that they know that that punishment is 
likely to occur. So that's the the the, yeah. the, the retributionist formula. It not only has to be a clear law, and but they also have to be a a, a law that is um, uh, sort of enforced uh, rigorously. Yeah, otherwise there still will be. Yeah, uh, but it, it, the expression part, the part where it's um, where it's not just um, saying this is what the international community values, it's also building or strengthening the, that mm-hmm. um, uh, that norm, that that value that we express. Right. It, it's mm-hmm. um, each case brings a, a recommitment um, mm-hmm. to to these values that these things shouldn't happen anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for instance, just watched today. Um, uh, Philip San talking about uh, ecocide, uh, and this mm-hmm. is exactly what he said. Um, the idea is not that we were starry-eyed and we would think that uh, large-scale ecological degradation would happen just because we have we have added ecocide to the ICC. It's sort of a yeah. way to start building the value that um, uh, that when you do something, extract resources or mm-hmm. do something that could be damaging to this to the ecology that you actually mm-hmm. think ahead and build a value yeah. where you you don't just recklessly go around extracting mm-hmm. resources without thinking what happens next and this is um this is this is the idea of the expressivism mm-hmm. half commanders think ahead how do i restrain my troops so they don't commit these crimes right how do i build mm-hmm. this value system in my chain of command states have to think about how do i build um the chain of command and how do they build training and et cetera, et cetera, so that these things don't happen, so that my mm-hmm. troops, my soldiers know what is the right thing to do and what is not the right thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of these trials sort of build up and build up on each other and, and mm-hmm. build that value system, right? Yeah, yes, exactly. Because if you think, this is important that from the expressivist point of view, that the, tra- the proceedings, can contribute, of course, as to a, as a sort of norm expression function, which is actually this is important insisting of expressing these norms of behavioral norms, what is should be not committed. So what uh, international community, what local communities as well should abhor or and what should value this community mm-hmm. should value, because once we have clear that is mine. This is a point, starting point, because if you think about all what happened, for example, again, in Congo, like sometimes the, the problem is that the population that don't have, oh, if you think about Rwanda, when I'm coming in my mind, that probably Rwanda is the best example, uh, the genocide in Rwanda, people are not aware exactly that much because, of course, of the situation, the historical political context they live in. Mm-hmm. They're so so emerging that they're not aware of what was the the social norm that should be they should comply with. So this is the point. The, the function of this tribunal should be besides punishing. But I'm not saying it's important, of course, because someone may think, okay, so now that we, that for example, the International Criminal Court send this message. Uh, help people, the community to understand what happened, so historical record conveys message of mm-hmm. what of norm expression. So what's the point of punishing the you know the perpetrator we're done. No, of course. It's also important that. But probably the most important thing is building up as establishing a a base, a minima mm-hmm. of human 
medical human rights. Yep. And that's starting from that. It's important, it's quite important because having this clear in mind in the future, again, we don't know because it's something that really we have to assess. There's no study that still evaluate whether or not in the long term international criminal institutions really have been really are successful in deterring criminal acts to happen. But this is this is the hope, I guess. Yes. So it's the opposite of the um, what what has happened in countries with backsliding democracies. Yes. So uh, in there, it's been the erosion of of norms of democracy, of good order, of rule of law uh, that has done this, uh, that has contributed to this backsliding. And, it, and it's not something that happens uh, from from tomorrow to, to from today to no, tomorrow. Sir. Right. It's a longer process. And conversely, the opposite side of this is building those norms also takes time and it, and you build those norms by building examples um, re-expressing your commitment to these values and re uh, and sort of putting your money where your mouth is um, in that sense yes exactly and i think expressing norm, norm expression function i think of international criminal trial is particularly useful if you look back what i said about retributivism that i mean international criminal justice doesn't work because of course it's impossible as well. Because if we say that what is the imperative of inter of uh, retributivism, perpetrator, he did something wrong, so he has to be punished. But of course we know that in reality a little minority of perpetrators is punished. Mm -hmm. So if, from a specialist point of view, on the contrary, even of course the best thing would be to punish, of course, every person who is involved in those crimes. But nevertheless, from a specialist point of view. Already when we punish even a small part, segment of the people involved, nevertheless, it's still enough to send those messages. So somehow it's quite useful expressivism because it overcomes this limitation of retributivism, which, mm -hmm. I mean, it's quite effective if you think about, you know, to provide a, useful, a strong foundation for international criminal justice. If you look just for to express me, of course, someone can say yes, but express me, you don't punish everyone. So, express uh, me, sorry, uh, retributivist, mm -hmm. you don't punish anyone. So, I mean, it's not fair retribution for everyone. So, it's exactly, it's somehow over expressivism overcomes this limitation because even with a limited amount of trials, it's still enough to send the message. Yes. Um and on the other hand, I, I'd like to explore, explore a little bit about how um, restorative justice is mm -hmm. oh, uh, yeah. uh, falls short of when it comes to international trials. Because the idea of, of restorative justice is that there is um, there's a sort of a, a meeting, a conversation between the victim and the perpetrator. And the important bit is where the perpetrator actually acknowledges their guilt. Right. Yeah. And then there's sort of a process of healing. Um, mm -hmm. And it and it's and, and the international criminal justice system is not sort of built to handle that, because there is an implied uh, sort of uh, uh, assumption that the perpetrator will defend themselves and they will do that vigorously. And throughout the whole trial, yeah. they will say that they're we're, um, I'm innocent, right? I am yeah, not guilty of of this thing. Um, so there is not this meeting point of of a victim and perpetrator where the perpetrator admits fault right yes exactly i mean 
we have to say, of course, that the perpetrator, as is, is right to say, of course, that he's yes. innocent. Yeah, definitely. There's a presumption <laughs> of innocence. That's why it's a directly <laughs> yeah, established truth. You can truth. say that. Yeah. Yes. But nevertheless, yes. If you think and, about but that, not only that, we sort of build an entire uh, defense mechanism. Yeah, around the defendant, Because of that retribution part, that if we are going to exact punishment, we really mm-hmm. want to make sure that the person is guilty, right? Yes. Uh, sure. But that in itself sort of has a conflict with this restorative part because it incentivizes the perpetrator to keep insisting that they are not uh, guilty. Well, uh, actually, you see, it's quite interesting because so if you think about so. What is, in very few words, restorative justice? So basically, there is, of course, a meeting between perpetrator and victim. In this meeting, of course, perpetrator first, uh, wrongdoer, anyway, uh, perpetrator, first of all, asks to forgiveness, of course, acknowledge, no, first of all, sorry, acknowledges his responsibility and asks for forgiveness. Then the victim has a chance to talk to say what what was the impact on him on her, the impact of the uh, the, of the crime, the criminal conduct on him on her, and so eventually they try to sort it out a solution, an outcome. And of course, if when we want to apply that to the traditional criminal justice system, of course, the first step, so the perpetrator has to acknowledge his own responsibility responsibility, which doesn't happen that often. On the other side, I did some research and I found out that, nevertheless, in this particular in the practice of the ICTY, uh, there was a sort of incentive of the court to just issue a milder sentence mm-hmm. if the perpetrators, of course, plead guilty. A plea bargaining system, uh, as it is. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And what happened, for example, the, there is... Uh, a case, oh my god, sorry, I forgot the name, Ljubljana, well, let me have a look, because, sorry, uh, what's what, uh, sorry, these names, like, I really struggle with that sometimes. Is it, um, uh, the, was it the uh, president of uh, the Republic of Srpska, or no? No, uh, Plavic. Plavic, Plavic, yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah, probably better. You cannot. Better I'm from the region, so yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, so you it's know. Actually, yeah. Yeah, that's not the mandatory. My PhD, she was pro- she's from Sarajevo, and when I asked to pronounce the name, I was going to uh, please help me. <laughs> Classic case, and and so basically she pleaded guilty, and she asked for the forgiveness to the victim. It was a very beautiful statement in the court. And then after a few, couple of years, she was interviewed by, I think, a Swedish uh, newspaper. And she said that actually she thinks she didn't do anything wrong. So somehow what happened, in, in short, that some this, this, uh, this feature of restorative justice that, um, that uh, asked the perpetrator to uh, ask to... Um, acknowledge his responsibility and responsibilities and of course ask for forgiveness somehow you is used it's not very genuine uh, forgiveness speech but or acknowledgement of responsibility is just a way to have a milder sentence mm-hmm. and again if you if you look if you think about in uh, 
restorative terms, of course, already we can see the old restorative process. How can you start if the perpetrator is not? The first step to take is to acknowledge his responsibility and actually is not doing that. So there's not an intention to take responsibility for real, to have an open conversation to restore the, the situation as it was before the committing of the crime. So you can see already that in, in international criminal justice, restorative justice is not, is not that likely to, to have a genuine restorative justice process. Then, of course, if we leave this side, this uh, first step of restorative process as besides, we think about then victims, of course. So in restorative justice practice, as no, as, but uh, requires victims to have an active role, of course, express how the crime affecting him, her, and also to work with the perpetrator to find the solution. And again, I can I cannot even imagine if you think about, I don't know, the most like important, well-known no, uh, proceeding at the ICC, or to think about the Milosevic case, I cannot even imagine Milosevic sitting just on the same mm -hmm. table, you know, with victims and discussing how his action harmed them, <laughs> you know, exactly. No, he was, he was arrogant <laughs> until the end. Yeah, exactly. This is another story, you see, like, it's difficult so to ever a real, a genuine restorative process in these international criminal mm -hmm. justice institutions. And also, like, eventually, the fact that uh, victims, eventually, in the end of this restorative process, victims should be entitled either a compensation, even maybe a moral, so, I don't know, I can think maybe a monument or something, or also some more practical, you know, some uh, monetary uh, restoration. Yep. But again, ICTY, CTR, ICC, nothing happens at times. Of course, there is a victim fund at the ICC, but again, giving just some compensation to some victims and not to others, again, is that fully restorative justice? And again, the fact that victims in the end of this process should feel uh, somehow a personal healing. Again, there are studies that do not prove that happening that much. Mm -hmm. For example, um, actually, it's quite surprising. And it's, it's not exactly my field of study, but there is a suggestion if someone is interested. There are few studies that, studies that investigate how, what is the impact on victims? Mm -hmm. uh, the impact of, of, after the impact, sorry, of their participation, international criminal proceedings. So whether they feel some personal healing, some, also some social healing, like in the healing of the community in a broader term. And there's not so many studies, studies about that. There are few actually that says that as a study uh, that uh, particularly focused on uh, the extraordinary chambers of the court in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. And this study says that actually victims who participate, they didn't feel that much this uh, cathartic experience. They didn't feel very better about the justice system, about the fact that the perpetrator was actually feeling sorry for what happened. So again, uh, it's not this healing 
for the victims is definitely not a mandatory aspect. It might happen to some, but mm -hmm. again, it kind of undermines the foundation of the restorative justice process. So that's, that's from my point of view, I do believe that international criminal justice should recognize some restorative justice values, some putting the giving chance for victims to actively participate in proceedings and hoping, of course, for victims' recovery. But saying that international criminal justice is fully a restorative justice institution, I mean, it's quite not correct from my point of view. That no, maybe some people will be better than me, because uh, actually it's quite interesting about that. I have the same feeling in the sense that, um, as you said, uh, the 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 phrase that you said previously, which is that the trial and the end of the trial is just the beginning of the conversation. So in terms of restorative justice, um, it's sort of a beginning of a process that's supposed to happen locally. Um, yes. So it is it is um, because, as you said, there are a lot of perpetrators. These are whole communities that came into conflict. So it isn't just the three or five or seven people who get to end up at the ICC. It's tens of thousands possible perpetrators. Yeah. So the the societal healing that needs to happen uh, is uh, basically needs to happen during and after the trial. It's not just the trial itself. Yeah. Or the judgment itself. Yes, actually, it's not just uh, just can be reduced to yeah the trial, even the just the judgment, the punishment, you know, and I think it's quite reductive in this way. Yes. Um, we've talked a lot about your your um, uh, your research. So, what are your future plans? Ah, my future plans. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, the trickiest question I'm ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, of course, in this moment, actually, I'm working from I'm working on my PhD thesis, mm -hmm. and except I signed a contract with Rootwood, so hopefully, if everything goes fine, fingers mm -hmm. crossed for me, uh, next year. The book from my, of course, the the monograph from my PhD, of course, will be out to the world. I mean, do we have scary. a provisional title? Yeah, the title, yes, we have. Uh, Victims' participation in international criminal proceeding. Okay. Uh, an expressivist justice model. That should be the the title, but. From my point of view, it's quite long, but let's see what happens with the editor. Yeah, no, no, I'm not good in titles, writing titles, but there's something that I have still to work on. But yeah, it will be out possibly uh, summer next year, mm -hmm. so, so in a year more or less, exactly. So then it will be out to the world, everyone, you know, can read it and hopefully <laughs> enjoy the reading. Knock on wood. While yeah, I'm, uh... definitely, yes. <laughs> And then besides that, of course, I'm also thinking about, of course, how to move because I'm still even, I finished my PhD quite a while now. I'm still, of course, working on my on my book, so I'm still anchored on my PhD. But what is the next? Of course, I'm just, I start writing some new ideas how to go further, you know, okay. the funding of my PhD. So basically, again, building on the funding of my uh, of my PhD. I want to try, you know, of course, to to write, you know, to keep writing, but anyway, to prepare a new research project, possibly see if a postdoc or, yeah, it's something still a very early stage, but 
yes. Mm, you, what I can say that I feel a very early stage idea in my mind mm-hmm. is that what I did in my research, of course, I evaluate whether or not the the specimen, as I said, is a good justification for victim's participation. So I I analyze decision by the ICC mainly and try to identify whether judges, uh, when they uh, in this decision establishing what uh, what rights victims can can have in the trial. Mm-hmm. So if they it can be found some elements that can be read as uh, upholding an expressivism uh, uh, perspective. So what I would like to do next, actually, to look at the contribution of victims. So what victims said in trials or the mm-hmm. victims' legal representative, whether or not what they say, actually, it was useful to... Um, to achieve those expressivist, expressivist goals we talk about today. So exactly from, so basically what I did in my PhD, I set the scene mm-hmm. and now in my eventual postdoc, let's see what happens. I want to see, so the script, so what happens, you know, actually what people, what is what I did, what I, I, I studied from a theoretical point of view is something that actually happens in, in the courtroom. Okay. So this is the, this is the plan. But of course, you know, like these things, it's competitive, you know. <laughs> As a former postdoc, I feel for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I and I have my fingers crossed for you. Yeah. <laughs> all right. before. Um, <laughs> so thank you very much uh, for this conversation. Please let us know when the book comes out. We might have uh, another conversation. Uh, of course. When so. that happens. Yes, definitely. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for all of us. Thank you for listening to another episode of Research at OU Law School. You can find more about Alessandro in the description below. If you want to find out more about the Open University Law School, check out the links in the description below. My name is Marian Ayevsky, and I am the Research Fellow at the Law School. Take care, and hope to see you again. Bye.